from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the problems that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. Our guest today is someone very near and dear to my heart. Three-time Grammy Award-winning conductor Joanne Folletta is the music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. She broke one of the greatest glass ceilings in the field of classical music upon her appointment in 1998, becoming one of the first women to be named music director of a full-time American orchestra. She recently stepped down as music director of the Virginia Symphony Orchestra after serving in that position for nearly 30 years. Her guest conducting engagements have taken her all over the world, from Hawaii to Iceland and beyond, and include an appearance with the Canton Symphony Orchestra in 1993. She is a fellow alum of Manus College of Music in New York City and is someone I am proud to call a mentor and friend. Joanne Folletta, it is a joy to have you here today. Welcome to Orchestrating Change. Oh, Matthew, thank you. What a beautiful introduction. And I feel the same way towards you. It was We have been friends since you first came to Buffalo, and, uh, and I've watched your rise in the music world with such joy. And uh, good to reconnect with you, and good to be with Rachel. Yeah, it's so wonderful to have you today. Uh, and always yeah. good to reconnect with you, Joanne. <laughs> yes, it's such a joy to have you here today. And I'm really, I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, because I've had the joy to work with lots of wonderful conductors in my time, and only one of them was a female the entire time. So it's wonderful to have you here to get your perspective on the field of conducting. So to start us off, uh, what led you to want to become a conductor? Well, I think going to orchestra concerts. You know, I was studying music as a child, and I was concentrating on classical guitar, which I loved and was Mm -hmm. very happy with. But when I started to go to, to orchestra concerts, I really felt something special for the orchestra, for the sound of it, for the idea of people playing together like that, for the music that I heard. Um, So around the age of 10 or 11, I was really completely fascinated by the orchestra and thought that for me, the the most wonderful place would be right in the middle of the orchestra, (laughs) in a way, um, helping that happen, mm. enabling that to happen. Mm. And that's the best way I could think about what a conductor did, not really knowing specifically what a conductor <laughs> did at that point. But, but um, I just fell in love with the, with the, with the instrument of the orchestra and, and what, it, what it played. Wow. Yeah, that's wonderful. So tell us a little bit about your career path from when you started off on this crazy path to becoming a conductor to your where you are currently at the Buffalo Philharmonic. Well, you know, when I decided I wanted to be a conductor, I really didn't understand at all what a conductor did, but I tried to learn as much as I could. And, and uh, so from the age of 10 or 11, I was looking at scores, I was going to concerts, I was imagining what a conductor did and, and uh, 
listening to music all the time. So when I went to Manus, our school, um, I was 18 and I told him I wanted to be a double major. I was accepted as a classical guitar major, but I had very, I had no actual experience in conducting. And I told him I wanted to be a conducting major. And they said, well, why don't we start with a single major the first year of classical guitar and see if you audit the classes, see what happens and see how you feel about this. And um, I think they were very supportive, but they were careful too, because they weren't, uh, I mean, conducting is not an easy field to, to make your way in, in, and especially for women at that time. So I always th take that as a very great kindness on the part of Manus that they wanted me to spend that year really being sure that that's what I wanted to do. And so I had this wonderful year where I was, you know, it just, it was like a heavenly year studying both classical guitar and going to all the conducting classes, you know, watching the, the conducting students there working, listening to Maestro Carl Bamberger, who was the teacher and just, uh, oh, just a person who thought always about uh, the background and the emotion in these pieces and where they came from and would talk about these pieces with such love. And I studied also with Pearl, Paul Beryl while I was there. And then I became a double major. And the school had some amazing conductor, conducting teachers besides Maestro Bamberg and Maestro Beryl. Uh, Semyon Bishkov was the teacher for a while and I got a chance to study with him. He had just come from Russia, from the Soviet Union and um, started to teach at Manus. Um, so that was, that was wonderful too. So that was the beginning. And, you know, I started to imagine what a conductor does. You know, it's, a, you don't learn it all at once. I mean, just kind of imagine what this professional life is and what you have to learn. And, and then after that, I went to Juilliard for, for my master's and my doctorate in conducting. And, and again, it's just been a path of learning all, all this time, because that's what we do as conductors. You don't ever get to the point where you say okay you know now I know I know what I'm doing I yeah. no, it's always it's like it's unfolding mm. so um, uh, my first job was in uh, Denver with a chamber orchestra and then you know I, I found myself going to very different places I'd never anticipate as associate conductor of Milwaukee Symphony yeah. uh, in Wisconsin and yeah. uh, working in Virginia working in Long Beach California working with the Women's Philharmonic in San Francisco which was a fantastic experience for me um, a lot of different places, a lot of different things. I've been working with the Ulster Orchestra in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And so a lot of different, different opportunities and a lot of learning situations where you could really start to understand how complex conducting is and how much there is to learn. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And were, at any point, would you say your early mentors at Manus, at Juilliard, were they at all hesitant or maybe concerned that at the time when you were studying there really weren't any women at all as music no, directors no. at major Matthew, orchestras. That's a beautiful word you just said, concerned. I think that at Manus that was more the issue that could a woman have a professional life as, a, as an orchestral conductor? Mm -hmm. There were women who were conducting courses. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, then they told me that, that that might be an easier route. But, but of course I had come into this I had fallen in love with the orchestra, so that's what I wanted to do. And and I think they were, I mean, they took a great leap of faith in letting me study. And uh, without that, I would never have been able to to learn how to conduct. So so I'm, I'm always grateful to them. And I think there was some skepticism, of course. And, and even at Juilliard, there was some skepticism. But my teacher there, uh, who was George Mester, um, believed that a woman 
could conduct. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not that he was easy on us. He was very difficult <laughs> uh, on all of us on the group that, that I had studied with. But um, um, again, I would never have been able to do it without those two schools opening the door and, and helping me just see how much I didn't know and how much I had to learn, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I didn't find daunting. I found it fantastic that I had all that possibility of learning all these things. That's and, oh, oh sorry, I just had a follow-up question. Were you by chance the first woman to graduate from either Manus or Juilliard with a conducting degree? You know, I'm not sure. I don't think from Juilliard because I think there was another. Yes, Victoria Bond did graduate oh. from Juilliard. She was the first mm. before me. So I might have been the second. She was the first. Wow. And Manus, I don't know. Again, I might have been the first or the second because they had... Uh, they had a, a woman before me, I think, and and uh, you know, I wasn't sure if they graduated or not. But but it was still a yeah. very small minority yeah. of women, and and uh, and people were just not sure it would work. I mean, and I understand that. I, I understand that it was just so different. Mm -hmm. And the image of a conductor at that time was of an autocrat. I mean, it still mm -hmm. was like someone like Toscanini or Herbert von Karajan, someone who you know was was on the podium with. Uh, um, kind of a ruling hand, you know, and there was a really autocratic feeling about that. Mm -hmm. and, and it was really hard to imagine a woman stepping easily into that role. Mm, yeah. So I think it's really That's wonderful the... that you had people at Manus that were so willing to help you along your way. I think that that's really, I think that some people actually might find that surprising just given how there are still a lack of female conductors in, in the orchestral industry. But I think it's, it's so wonderful how supportive people were of you while you were going through schooling. Yeah, oh, they were. Yeah. But you know, it's still, I, I guess I thought then Rachel that there would be a lot more women conductors right away hmm. that the door was open and you know, and right. it would happen, but instead it's taken a very long time. Yeah. And I think it's because our field of classical music is so traditional. Mm -hmm. it's very, well, just think about, we're playing music that people played 250 years ago. <laughs> we're sort of still dressing in kind of, uh, you know, formal garb as they did, you know, in their formal garb. Uh, all of the traditions are the same. You know, it, it took a long time for women to even be accepted in an orchestra. Right. So, right. Um, so I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised that it took a long time, but I just assumed it would it would change quickly and it's starting to change yeah. now in, in a real way, mm -hmm. but, but it has taken a while. Right. Yeah. And, and, and after you graduated yeah. and you entered into this field, um, how, what was it like getting hired as a conductor? Did you find it that people were reluctant to hire uh, a female conductor when they, you know, in the search committees? Well, you know, it's hard to say because you never know why something didn't work out or something did. You don't really know. Mm -hmm. So so you might have thought that that audition went very well, but someone else was hired. Now, there might have been all kinds of reasons for right. that that were valid, of course, but you don't know. So mm -hmm. um, I think there must have been situations where people said, well, you know what, maybe our orchestra is not ready for a woman. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, they're, they're not going to feel... Um, a sense of leadership that they need from her. Or sometimes people would say, well, how would a woman deal with a board that was largely male, mm. you know, and they were, these were people who were heads of companies and, you know, had very strong positions in their businesses. How would they feel working with a woman in a leadership role? So I guess there, I, I would imagine there were, I mean, I, it, it was a situation where I, 
I tried not to be too aware of it. And mm -hmm. I'm glad because I didn't Im start imagining things then either. You know, sometimes when you look for prejudice, you can find it mm. and uh, you don't always know. So I, I decided instead, just focus on the music, focus right. on being with the musicians and doing the best job you can right. and learning and taking those steps. So there probably is still a great deal of prejudice, especially in some places now with women on the podium. I'm sure there is. But again, it's not something that we can, if we focus on that too much, we can't really grow as musicians. Mm, yeah. and we, can't, we can't do the best job possible. Right. Okay. So I just wanted to follow up with that a little bit. Would you say that in your earliest positions with orchestras, that at any point there was a more hostile or at least skeptical attitude from the musicians mm. towards having you a woman on the podium and furthermore has the attitude changed over the decades oh it certainly changed and at the beginning i would say that it was it wasn't so much uh difficulty with your own orchestras like with denver i never felt the denver chamber orchestra i never felt any sense of oh, this is a woman and, you know, we feel uncomfortable with this. I never felt that. I started to become more aware of it when I started to guest conduct in Europe. Mm. And there it was, it was less, less uh, covered. I mean, they were <laughs> astonished, you know, to have a woman conductor in some ways. They were disbelieving that a woman could conduct. And I found that it took a long time to get them to sort of relax and stop thinking about it. Um, especially in places like Germany and Austria, where they, mm -hmm. there was just a, maybe a sense of resistance to it uh, because it never had happened before. And many of these orchestras had very few women in right. them too. Right. So it was not a comfortable thing for them. But generally in the United States, I think, especially with orchestras with younger people, mm -hmm. there was much more of an openness to it. And um, and that was good. I, maybe even 10 years before I started at Manus, it wouldn't have been possible. I don't know, because I know that there were people like Antonio Brico and uh, Sarah Caldwell who were really trying to have a career as an orchestral conductor. And it just wasn't possible. Wow. It just wasn't possible. I mean, even Margaret Hillis told me it was one of the greatest or uh, choral conductors. She was the uh, choral conductor for the Chicago Symphony and all the great recordings that they made. She was fantastic. She told me she always wanted to conduct an orchestra, mm. but no one would ever let her. They thought she was a great chorus master and a great choral conductor. But they would never let her conduct an orchestra. And so there was no way to fight against it then. Mm. So um, I feel like it was just, just the right time. And, and with Manus and Julia being open to it, I was able to do it. Mm. Yeah. I, so you ultimately got hired um, as one of the first female uh, music directors of a full-time American orchestra, um, which was, uh, you know, unique of the time when you did get hired with Virginia. And I think, um, did you see yourself when that happened as a trailblazer, as someone who was starting maybe this ball rolling downhill of getting more momentum going or, or were you just well, living in the I, moment? I, know I was kind of daunted by it hmm. because it wasn't, I never really saw myself as a trailblazer only because I didn't, I didn't go out. I didn't set out to prove anything. Right. You know, I wanted to be a conductor because I was in love with the orchestra and the music and that was all. And, and, uh, and I didn't necessarily believe that a woman couldn't, but I wasn't really pursuing it to say, aha, a woman can do this. It, I, that never really was much of my focus. It was really more on the music. So as I started to move through my career, that's how I focused on it, that, that um, 
that I was doing the best I could and I was learning. When I got to Virginia, it was a full-time job, which all of a sudden seemed to me very overwhelming because all of a sudden these musicians were counting on the orchestra for their livelihood. They had families, they had apartments, they had, you know, this was their life. And everything that I did then seemed to me to be more important and have more meaning because it was part of, of it was one of the main things in their lives. So it seemed like a terrible responsibility, especially since as Matthew and you both know, orchestras are very fragile. You know, there's <laughs> constantly trying to raise money, constantly trying to, you know, make everything work. And, and uh, uh, it's not easy, but being in that situation made me really start to think about the orchestra world in a different way. That all of a sudden I had the responsibility of being the person who could be an ambassador to the community, mm -hmm. who could help the orchestra thrive and help the community love the orchestra. And that seemed very important to me. Yeah. So you do a ton of work with students. I was extremely fortunate when I was a master's student to be able to come up to Buffalo, I think six times when it was all said and done, and to assist you on your Masterworks concert series, as well as uh, guest conduct on an educational concert. Uh, I also saw you conduct at CIM, Cleveland Institute of Music. So not just, not just with your alma mater, Manus, but also other students. Uh, how important do you feel it is to mentor the next generation of classical musicians? Well, I think it's very important. And, and actually, it goes in two directions, Matthew. I mean, being with you and hearing your perspectives on the music you were learning and, and your love of Vaughn Williams and all the things that were very <laughs> special about you uh, opened up different worlds for me, too. I learned a lot from that. So when I'm working with young people, the enthusiasm and the and the rapid progress of as they learn a piece you know from one rehearsal to the next all of a sudden it's opening up and they they get to the end and they really understand it that's thrilling to me and um with students you can get that so and, and i think they they uh, like someone who comes to them having conducted the piece before because they know that you know where the where the difficulties are how you can get through these spots how how what the music means really so so I find it very thrilling. And in the summer, I do spend a lot of time with young people too. And, uh, and um, it's very, very inspiring to me. I just listening to you talk, I think you have a perfect attitude for someone who is teaching and mentoring. And I think, you know, we're talking about, you know, first female conductor of a, one of the major American orchestras, that sort of thing. But I, I love that your, pers your perspective your entire life was just a love of orchestra. And it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. there. You weren't there to and prove with, it. Yeah, yeah. With that comes a love of musicians, you know, right. because when you have that team around you, uh, now all of us have had situations where things are not always easy <laughs> in being a leader of a group of very talented people, which musicians yeah. are, you know, so, so whatever age they are, even young ones, sometimes it's hard to sort of, to, to sort of find the way to bring everything together. Mm -hmm. But in the end, when you think about the, the talent of that team, and I'm talking even with young people, the mm -hmm. talent of that team, is, it's awe-inspiring mm -hmm. when you have 60 or 70 or 100 people around you yeah. and all of them have been playing their instruments since they were seven or six or five years old mm -hmm. um, and uh, are so gifted. That's, that's very inspiring. Mm -hmm. So this respect that I feel for musicians is 
truly has no boundaries. I mean, I think it's, I think it's the greatest team in the world. Mm. And when you think about musicians playing together and the mental process that that requires and the physical skill they have to develop, the athletic skill they mm -hmm. have to develop to be able to do that, to be able to listen, to see the music, to watch the conductor, to, to hear what their colleagues are doing, to understand how to play that. It's, it almost seems impossible that they could do it. And uh, so I, I still feel amazed by musicians and orchestras. And I think uh, it's, it's a team that, that has no equal. Mm, yeah, it sounds like you, while you are yourself a mentor and teaching that you find just as much learning and experience and growth from working with people, which um, I do, which is I wonderful. Do. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, right? no, I think that's, yeah. I think that w you become a, a better teacher when you listen and uh, observe the people around you and take that into your own teaching. I think I've always, you know, being with people and learning from them and getting new perspectives always, I think, makes me a better person at the end of the day. And right, um, right. yeah, and, and a better conductor too, because mm. as you as you listen to how people are playing and you can sense if they're comfortable or not, or if they feel inspired, or if they're if they're feeling that that this just doesn't doesn't seem to work for them, you learn a lot. A lot of that is nonverbal learning. Mm -hmm. They're not talking to you, but you learn a lot from how they move, how they're sitting, how they're engaged in the music. Um, body language, facial expression, you learn a lot. And, and, uh, and to spend every day your life learning like that, it, it's, a, it's a great gift mm -hmm. because you, you just keep on growing. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wanted to talk briefly about from your perspective as a music director, what do you think the role of a music director is within the full organization that is an orchestra? Well, the music director is responsible for the artistic health of the orchestra, and that's that's everything that's involved in that. Not only the pieces that they're playing and how they're playing them and what the concert sounds like, but who you hire, what pieces you choose to play, what soloists come into the orchestra, mm. what's the overview of the season, why do this piece instead of that piece, all of those decisions, um, artistic decisions are important. And, but then you have to coalesce the team around you because very often when you're a music director, you're working with a marketing department and a development department mm -hmm. and, a, and um, a finance department and, and the executive director who may or not have a lot of musical background, mm -hmm. but they love the orchestra and they want to succeed, succeed. So bringing everyone together, that team as a fulcrum where they're all unified around the orchestra, around the music, that's a big part of it. Right. And then you take that, that belief in the power of music and you have to transmit it to the community. Now that's not true that you're going to get everyone in the community <laughs> convinced that, that the orchestra is, is the most important thing in mm. Canton or in Buffalo, right. but, but you have to try right. to spread the word uh, and to, to have them take ownership of that orchestra right. and take care of it essentially to value it. Uh, and as a music director, you spend a lot of your time talking to people mm -hmm. and, and helping them realize how special this, this heritage is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think you could be a music director and not be passionate about orchestral yeah. music. I don't think it would work very well. I no, don't know. Yeah. I don't no. think you could be a conductor. You have, you're the, the most passionate right. one. You are the most passionate <laughs> one and you have to convince people. And when they talk to you, it's like, oh, okay. I, you know, I'm going to give that a try. I never thought about it like that. Well, that sounds exciting. Mm -hmm. And then get them involved in, mm -hmm. in the orchestra and its world. Yeah. So it's, you know, being a part of the community, I think that's so wonderful. I, I'm not sure 
maybe this is me speaking out out of turn, but I th I don't feel all music directors share your same definition of what a music director does. I know, you know, well, you know, some yeah. music directors are very, very. I'm on the stage. I play the music. We pick the music, and right. they don't think right. about the mission or the community or the people in their community necessarily. Well, yeah, they're they're missing so much. I think, and yeah. I know that that's maybe more the case from conductors with the, with conductors who've been trained in Europe mm -hmm. and in Europe there isn't the maybe the need or the model that the conductor becomes very involved in the community right. because essentially you, you're not a fundraiser mm -hmm. you don't need to be generally mm -hmm. in Europe because a lot of the money comes from the government so right. it's different you're a kind of a person who just performs and then you yeah. know doesn't get involved but I, I feel sorry for those people sometimes because they're missing out on the joy of making people joyful. I mean, when you talk to someone about a concert and they come backstage and say to you like, Matthew, I'm so glad you told me about this concert. I love that piece. And when you explained it to me, it meant so much more to me. That's that, how could you miss that? I mean, that's, it makes it great to be a human being to be able to touch people that way. And, and I think that music directors who do that really feel as you do. I mean, when you, when you reach out to people that it gives you so much more in return. And one of the things that I love the most about conducting is I love interacting with people. If I weren't a conductor, I would make sure that whatever else I was doing would involve interacting with people. And it's one of the, to me, it's one of the joys of the job that you get to work with people, both that you get to work with your colleagues, the musicians, and really have a, a visceral life experience, the kind of which I, I kind of feel like it's slipping away the more and more digital our world gets. But we as yeah. conductors, as musicians, we are still blessed to live and to be a, a part of a profession where we still get to live so viscerally in the world with one another, mm -hmm. as well as, of course, interacting with the patrons outside of the con after the concert. Well, you know, that's bringing people who never thought that they would enjoy music or understand music or have that feeling all of a sudden you've given them this incredible gift and it's, it's amazing to feel that. So, so, um, so yeah, people are a big, big part of the equation, not only the musicians, but the people around the organization that, that get involved with it, that fall in love with the orchestra <laughs> and a large part of it is because of you, because of what, how you've talked to them or how you, you know, how you interact with them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you have become known for programming many lesser known composers. Uh, I had the privilege of assisting you on Vaughn Williams' Second Symphony, but even Vaughn Williams is sort of more standard repertoire. I also got to do some pieces by Vitislav Novak, as well as pieces by Florent Schmidt, two composers who many, many symphony goers probably have never heard of. And I must admit, before I assisted them with you, I hadn't heard of them either. In addition to that, you've programmed a lot of female composers and a lot of composers of color as well. And uh, on your website, you've mentioned that you're working to bring about artistic change and making sure that voices that haven't previously been heard in the concert hall get a chance to be heard. Big question you know, here. I had, I had a life-changing experience, and Matthew might remember this. I had a life-changing experience while I was still at Juilliard, and I received a phone call from an orchestra in San Francisco called the Women's Philharmonic. And they asked me if I would come out and visit them and maybe conduct a concert. Um, and they explained a little bit about themselves. They were an orchestra, all of women, uh, performing music only written by women. Mm. 
And I was so confused by this because I, I never conducted a piece by a woman. I didn't even know a piece by a woman. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing to say that now, but my, my teach, my, my education was so traditional. I mean, we learned the great composers, mm -hmm. they were all white men, you know, from the 18th and 19th century. Um, and I didn't know anything about it. And they said, well, it doesn't matter, you know, just come and we'll show you. And so I went out there, I conducted a concert that included the symphony by Amy Beach. I don't know if you've ever yeah. heard that. It's a wonderful piece and, and, and two other wonderful works. And all of a sudden I realized that there was this huge part of, of the world of music that I knew nothing about, mm -hmm. nothing. And every concert that I did with them, because I worked with them for 10 years, um, was different. Everything was, was new, whether it was a piece from the past by Fanny Mendelssohn or Clara Schumann, or it was something by Jennifer Higdon or uh, Gabrielle Lena Franck. Well, it was new. And I just said, this is, this has got to be part of my life. I, I, I love Brahms. I love, I love Dvorak, but this is important. So I think I always had from that point an appetite for looking for unusual repertoire. Mm -hmm. And when I got to Buffalo and we were approached by Naxos to record for them, um, they had a very big caveat. We could never record anything that they already had in their library. And I don't know if you've ever looked at the Naxos yeah, library. That's they huge. have everything. Wow. Literally everything. Wow. So they said, no, we'll find something that we don't know. Doesn't have to be 20th century, 21st century, doesn't have to be new, but it has to be something that people have never heard. So that started me on the voyage that led to Florian Schmidt and Vitislav Novak and Joseph Sook. Um, wonderful, mostly early 20th century or late 19th century, but mostly early 20th century composers who were just not really known. And it's, it's been a great journey and it's influenced how I think about traditional pieces now, all of that experience, because I try and see them as if they were brand new, as if no one had ever conducted them, like the Women's Philharmonic where no one had ever conducted these pieces and we had to figure out how they went, you know, there was no, there was no traditional way of doing it. So I think that that's really changed how I think about music. And I'm very grateful to the Women's Philharmonic most of all, because they were the ones who opened the door to this vast repertoire or the idea that there is a vast repertoire out there uh, that people don't know and deserve to know. So in a place like Buffalo, where you're recording these, these pieces for Naxos for the first time in the Naxos catalog, but, of course, part of that, part of the recording is that there's going to be a concert for the people of Buffalo involved. How do you get the people, the audience that knows that they love Brahms and Beethoven, but maybe yeah. doesn't yet know that they love Vitislav Novak? How do you bring <laughs> the people along in this journey with you? Well, you know, I, there's a little bit of an advantage I had in Buffalo and that Buffalo years and years before I came was uh, had music directors like Lucas Foss and Michael Tilson Thomas. Lucas Foss especially was here at a time uh, in the um, 70s and 80s when it was truly, he made Buffalo the epicenter of the new music world and the Buffalo Philharmonic was constantly playing the most avant-garde, outrageous new music. So the audience had a sense of, well, I might not understand that, but it's important that we're doing this, you know, this, it's important that we're, we're helping American music develop. So there was this mindset of, okay, let's give it a chance. And then as they started to trust the pieces I was choosing, they became into it. They got into it, you know, like, well, let's see, let's see what, what he sounds like, you know, see if we're going to like him as much as we liked the one 
four or five months ago that you got a new person and and uh, but it's because of them and it's because the musicians are willing to work on music that's very hard there's there's no way in some places to even listen to it the most difficult thing we ever did was record two symphonies by a man who had been killed at auschwitz the symphonies oh. he left them uh, with a student who then brought them to me as an old man by then of course the wow. student was was in his 80s but he said uh, my life's journey has been to get my teacher's work uh, recorded but it was almost impossible to read those manuscripts. The manuscripts themselves were falling apart. I mean, they were written in the 30s. So, um, but we recorded them. And I think that was the most challenging thing we had done. We had no reference for any of that. We had to make all kinds of decisions about, is this right? Or should this be the chord that he used in the first, the first phrase of, you know, the similar, similar uh, section. Uh, but it was worthwhile. So, um, we believed in it and we believe in it. So in fact, we have a right now just coming out our second Florent Schmidt uh, CD. So again, very difficult music, but, but very, very wonderful. Wow. I think it's so wonderful to have this perspective of just pure discovery and education and love for the art form. And, and when you have that sort of essence to yourself, when you're looking at programming music for an orchestra it's not out of the ordinary to program something that is by a woman or by a person of color yes. or from exactly. someone who's no one's ever heard of and i think that's the kind of attitude that the orchestra world needs when looking at programming our seasons is discovery and what is new and fun and like you said earlier when you play these pieces that are not as well known that are not played as often it gives you a different perspective into beethoven and then beethoven seems a little different and more fun you're absolutely and right. i i you're think that's right and people wonderful. tell me that you know how is the orchestra going to stay alive and be relevant and i always say well we have to incorporate our, the music of our time mm. into our canon i mean we're never going to ever abandon beethoven and Brahms. Yeah. never i mean that's a treasure that we always have but if we just stay in that in that time we do invalidate ourselves. So the, the way for the orchestra to stay, to stay powerful, to stay important and yeah. relevant is if we play music of the 21st century, because it does inform the other music, the older music. Yeah. And so, and that's been a great joy. I mean, working with living composers, I don't know, you've done a lot of that too. And uh, it's, it really is something special when you have a composer right next to you who's sort of discovering his piece or her piece for the first time too, when you're mm. playing it. Uh, that's what we have to do. And, yeah. and if you can help young musicians get that kind of an interest right at the beginning of their career, mm -hmm. that, uh, well, this new music, I don't quite understand this piece yet, but it's interesting and have them grow into it. Yeah. It's, 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 we, need, we need to. We need to keep our, our form valid. Mm -hmm. And the, I just was thinking the art world, the visual art world has museums and they have galleries, museums for the, the great masters and galleries for what's new and exciting. And if we in the classical music world only focus on the museum aspect, yeah. yes, we will enjoy many wonderful performances of our masters, our beloved composers of the past. But if we forget that gallery aspect, then we're gonna cease to be a living art form mm -hmm. where 
new, the old is still played and respected, but the new keeps things fresh at the same time. Oh, you're so right. You're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm so thrilled to hear you say that because there are many people who are afraid to take a chance. And, and sometimes it is hard. You see a new piece, you're not quite sure uh, what form it's in or how it's going to develop, but you go on that adventure and you're maybe not going to love every new piece that you do, but there will be those pieces that you do love. Yeah. And, and it's not only as a conductor, if you try and help young people, a cellist, they say, you know, find a composer whose work you like and play it, you know, just be a part of his or her life. and and uh, be a part of the world today because yeah. in a sense it is, it is our voice and we can't ignore that. People who are writing today are writing about our time, our world, our problems and, and our, our vernac in our vernacular. It's very important yeah. and it's a joy. Absolutely. So we have experienced an incredible upheaval <laughs> in the world of orchestral music starting in mid-March with, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. During this time, how, ha how has this time away from the regular routine of conducting pushed you as a conductor and as a musician? Well, the big thing was is that I had more time to look at scores that I hadn't looked at because for a long time we were not playing. Uh, then we started to play back in September, and, and that was very joyful to come back together. But but from March through the summer, we really weren't playing. But um, going along that in, in that time, were of course lots of protests, lots of lots of of, uh, of of kind of reawakening in the United States about how we viewed each other, and uh, and I think that that you know our orchestras have a, have the responsibility and the and the joyful the joyful possibility of incorporating those voices. So I did a lot of studying about, especially young women and men of color today and what they're writing and how that could be incorporated into our programs um, and found a lot of things, some things that I had done and that I knew, but a lot of things that are fabulous that uh, people didn't know about. So mm -hmm. that for me was an awakening because I think that, um, you know, the orchestras, we have the possibility you know, of course, you can go out and protest, and that's fine too. But we actually have the possibility of creating something beautiful that's lasting. Mm -hmm. You know, if we find a piece by Michael Abels or or um, uh, uh, Joseph Boulogne from from long ago, we find a piece that some that really is beautiful, and we perform it, and the orchestra is convinced, and the audience is convinced. That's a big step forward. I mean, so we're doing what we do well. And, and we're bringing something to life. So. Both with the pandemic and with everything that happened, I had a similar experience. I got to discover this mm -hmm. whole new world of music that I really hadn't even been aware of before. And now that I've discovered it, it's like, how did I go my whole <laughs> life up to this point without know. knowing I, that I this existed? I feel the same way. And I felt the same way with the Women's Philharmonic. And, and then you, you, never, you, you never forget those pieces and you incorporate them in a natural way and you do what you do best. I mean, you, you give a great performance of that piece. And that's a big step forward in how we think about diversity yeah. when we play it well. You yeah. know, not because we have to, or not because we have to have a certain number of pieces on yeah. our season mm -hmm. uh, and we sort of check the boxes that we did, mm -hmm. it, but because we believe in these pieces. Yeah. And when you believe in them, then your orchestra believes in them and, and they convince everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's so, it's so important that we, we play this music for the, for the sake of playing the music, not 
because we feel obligated to check a box like you said or to meet a certain quota that it, we play it because it's good music and it deserves right. and needs to be played um it, it was it's super fun to watch the students play poem for orchestra um and it was it was fun to watch you, you matthew would text me and be like i found this piece <laughs> and it was it was really fun to watch watch yeah. the discovery happen and i'm so excited for more discovery and you know, we, we have a young composer in residence for the Youth Symphony this year, and she is writing a piece for the advanced orchestra that uh, they'll, they'll play in May. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very ex exciting to watch them interact with a young composer as well, who is at the beginning of her journey writing music. And there's just been oh, so It's so, so important. I'm glad you're doing that because, you know, a lot of times even young musicians are frightened of new music. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. it doesn't sound immediately beautiful they say oh i don't i don't like this you know i just don't <laughs> like this piece of music and it takes them a little while for it to open up and then they realize wow you know okay it's the language is different and it doesn't sound like mozart or tchaikovsky but it's great mm -hmm. and then having the composer there of course is yeah. is really something special mm, yeah so you know looking at the orchestral industry right now and in, into the future a little bit how do you view the orchestral industry in its current state and how do you see that moving forward into the future maybe you know just after covid and maybe with this new awakening that i feel a lot of people have gotten how do you see that changing the orchestral industry moving forward i think it will change it i mean it's in in a way this is a very difficult time for us because you know we can't really do what we want to do but but i think it's made us realize that music is important, that that it's it's necessary. It's not just for people who want to go out and have a nice dinner and then come to the concert. It's it's physically and viscerally important for people to have music and people are really missing it. And that's that's important, but but it's also maybe has spurred us on to say, okay, but we have to reflect what our what our time is, because you know, it was it Shostakovich? Shostakovich said, um, music is the whisper of history against the um the noise of uh, something of noise music is a whisper of history against the, the noise of time mm. meaning that there's a lot of noise going on always in the world but music actually is the history of who we are you know and that's that's there so who are we if we if we don't play our music then we don't even know who we are so you know, we look back and we, you know, play Bartok and we realize what Bartok was going through in his life and what was going on in the world. He tells us, you know, we, we know those things because those people wrote that. So I think it's critical for us to know that music is history, almost more, more vivid than if you read a history book, you hear a piece of music and you know what it's like. Like Vaughn Williams, you know, the, the, this, this, um, this, change of the world as he's writing you know he goes from the bucolic 19th century into world war one you know mm. which is what happened to the world and you hear that in his music you hear that and so viscerally so i think all of us need to be hungry for that mm. yes it will always have music that goes comes to us from the past and that's beautiful but uh, i think we'll think of music differently yeah. And we have to protect music, too, because there are those people who say, let's throw out all the music of the past and never play it again. There's even mm -hmm. people who say that Beethoven shouldn't be played because he was a white man. Well, 
Beethoven was the biggest revolutionary of our mm -hmm. of all time. I mean, he was not he was not for kings and princes. He mm -hmm. was for the common person. They're missing the whole point. I mean, he was a revolutionary, and uh, so we have to treasure that too. Yeah. But but I think let's hope this is true that when when finally people can come back to the concert hall, they will be so emotional and so hungry for that. And of course, partly it's being together, but partly it's being in the presence of that music, mm. you know, which is not the same as much as we, you know, we've all been watching a lot of videos and things, but it's not the same. Absolutely. There's nothing like hearing it from directly from the musicians on stage, instruments unmediated by any sort of electronic directly to your ears. The energy in the room is, is just impossible to you represent. You feel it. You feel it. You Absolutely. Can feel that energy. So I, I have a question just about Buffalo going forward. Do you see any major changes or changes in direction or new things to be incorporated that will be permanent, long-lasting changes for the future of the orchestra that were brought on by the pandemic? Well, we are doing so much more visual work. I mean, video work and and. Uh, streamed work and tape work than we have ever done or ever even dreamed about doing. I mean, all of our concerts now are streamed. Uh, we don't do anything live yet, although we're waiting, but you know, New York is, has been very strict about rules. So we haven't welcomed anyone into the hall. We can come on the stage and, and work, but we have to film that and, and let people see it. So I think that maybe some aspects of that streaming is going to continue for people who can't come to the concert or for students who are too far away and can't come to the youth concert to find a way yes. to actually mm -hmm. have a valid and and um, you know sort of real mm -hmm. uh, virtual experience for where sure. they can actually be a part of a concert mm -hmm. virtually mm -hmm. you know so so that's probably going to be something we'll always keep no one wants to keep that like 100 percent no one, everyone wants that thing from going to the background, but, but we will keep some of it. We'll keep that possibility that we can reach people, maybe an audience that we haven't reached before and bring them in. And of course, this whole new repertoire, that's going to be quite different for us. You know, this new repertoire that we, that we've discovered and, and kind of our, our strength in, in writing history and in changing history, that we can do that. Again, we don't have to be people who are politicians or who are protesting we can do it as artists. And I think artists have always made a very strong statement and, and we can do that too. Absolutely. And we, uh, we produced a virtual young people's concert this fall, yeah. which reached over 6,000 students in our area where typically the concert at best reaches about 4,000. And yeah. that that's even in a very, very good year. Yeah. So the fact that we were able to reach as many as we did virtually has sort of opened our eyes yeah. as well mm -hmm. to the possibility of, well, we do still want to have a live concert For with sure. a live audience, but the virtual component can allow even more people yeah, to be a part of it. Especially for our rural school, especially for the rural communities who are much further away. Of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yes. that they that they need that. We've been making a lot of videos for schools and, and you know, I bet you've been doing this too, or you might like to expand on it, where our musicians are actually making a video about who they are and the violin, yep. how they learned, how they play it, they, they demonstrate it. And then they make practice videos mm. where the students can play along with them, even if it's scales mm. or arpeggios, 
they play them and the students can play along with them at home. So they're helping them learn how to yeah. practice, yes. you know, the, the, the speed that you practice and then you move it faster and you, you know, gradually get faster. And the music teachers have been saying that's been extremely mm. helpful having the orchestra yeah. musicians do these one-on-one -on -one videos, you know, saying, okay, this is how you put the clarinet together, even at the most basic level right. and then start teaching um, the, give these little po podcast lessons yeah. that um, the students can mm -hmm. actually play along with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's because it's, the teachers are so, having a very rough time too. Yeah, really rough time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we felt a little bit of that with Youth Symphony being a virtual thing. Everyone's virtual, and uh, you know, really proud of how it's all come together. But it is definitely difficult to keep students so engaged when it has to be electronic but i think moving forward after this pandemic for those communities that maybe don't have money for buses or something that exactly and there are a lot of them exactly getting an option for them where they don't have to come to you that you can go to them is going to be really important but so in the few minutes we have left our podcast is called orchestrating change so I'll ask a very pointed question to that regard. How do we orchestrate change? And how can our listeners help us orchestrate that change as well? Well, I think we orchestrate change by helping young people. First of all, that's very important. You know, the, the people are always asking, why don't we see more people of diversity in the orchestras? Oh, we should take down the screens because we, we want to have change happen right away. But true change takes a long time, mm -hmm. just as it took a long time for women to be able to get on the podium, it took many, many decades. But true change will happen when people are willing to invest in young people, in those young people who can't afford music lessons so that they can afford music lessons, or can't afford maybe to go to, to a, a camp in the summer, music camp in the summer that so can be life-changing to make it possible for them to go, to have a good instrument, to have good instruction, to play in a group, which of course changes your whole perspective on, on music, that your friends are playing music. That's what I'd like to see people doing, mm -hmm. orchestrating change, going back to the young people. Now, and that's not to say all of those young people, you know, picking up a flute at the age of eight are going to be professional musicians, but mm -hmm. they will be a better person because they play the flute. They will be a smarter person. They will be a more tolerant person, a more accepting person. So what greater gift can that be? I mean, they may be a better doctor because they played the flute or played the violin. It does affect who you are as a human being. So I think we need to go back and, and get right at the beginning of that stream. Don't try and change things artificially, but change things where, where, where it really matters. And then on our end, again, just change the repertoire, make having a live composer in the hall an everyday thing mm. you know that somebody is oh another new piece wow that's good I, I wonder how this one's going to be you know where people actually look forward to it rather than dreading it as they might have done 20 years ago say, oh a piece from just written but but so we can orchestrate change and then and, and i think we can do it more quickly than we think mm. if we really concentrate on that yeah. and, and are open to it and to your point about starting from the source from the very beginning with young people even if they don't become professional musicians they're going to grow up to be educated consumers of classical music mm -hmm. and if they're not on stage they're going to be our future audience yeah. and they're going to be crucial to the long-term success as consumers of what we produce right. 
Well, and who's the most the most wonderful people in our audience? It's always the people who said, "Oh, I played trumpet throughout high school and college. I played trumpet. I don't play it now, but I love music." Yeah. Aren't those 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 musicians who <laughs> never intended to be professional and they went on to be doctors or lawyers or accountants or whatever, but they know what music is, mm. and and that's changed their life, mm. and it yeah. will change it will change the health of orchestras as well. Absolutely, yeah. and with our youth symphony, I I the main goal is. I want the kids to, in 20 years, wherever they end up living, be thumbing through their orchestra season and say, oh my gosh, Sibelius Second Symphony. I have the best memory of playing that piece in youth orchestra when I was in high school. I'm going to go to that. I'm going to bring my family and friends and share this experience with them. That is so true. That is so true. Again, not to make them professionals because many of them have so many skills in other ways too that they can they can change life for other people. But but music does change them. I really yeah. believe that. I always tell young kids who are musicians that you're so lucky to be a musician. You'll always be a musician no matter what you do as a professional life. Mm. You will always be a musician and you'll always have that way of, look, of looking at life. I think musicians have such tolerance for differences in people mm. because learning music you learn there are many different ways of approaching any anything in music tempo sound color you learn that and it's good it's okay they they have this tolerance for ambiguity like not everything is black and white there are all these shades of possibility and those are the kind of people you want in our world, right? People who don't feel it's either me or you, but that there's we have a lot in common and we have a lot to learn from each other. And music teaches that. Well, Absolutely. Joanne, thank you so much for being with thank us you, today. Rachel. Thank you and thank you, Matthew. I hope I get uh, to meet you, Rachel, in person. Yes, but Matthew, yes. I know I will see you again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Joanne Folletta, music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra and three-time Grammy Award-winning conductor. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Rachel. You stay well, and I hope to see you soon. Illumination, the Canton Light Festival, continues Fridays and Saturdays, 6 to 9 p.m. through February 27th. Sponsored by Arts and Stark and Visit Canton, Illumination invites guests to start their evening at the Canton Cultural Center for three light shows, touchless kids activities, and light sculptures. Then progress to other downtown locations, including the Hall of Fame City Ice Rink and Centennial Plaza. Visit all eight locations for a chance to win a night at Gervasi Vineyard. For more info, visit cantonlightfestival.com. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.